Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Unspeakable, a true crime podcast where I tell stories of real crimes with real victims, whose cases are so shocking that many are left wondering, how is this even real? I use my experiences in law enforcement, corrections, and combined with my years as a criminal justice educator, dig deep into complex cases of evil acts, some so evil, many feel they are unspeakable. Warning, Unspeakable is intended for mature audiences. If you are easily offended, then I'm not your girl. Listening discretion is advised. Hey y'all, KJ here back for a new episode of Unspeakable. I hope you've been having a great week so far. If if you're a Patreon member, you're listening on Tuesday. It's only the second day. So, I mean, it can't be that bad, right? But uh, I hope y'all are doing great. I've got a couple of shout outs for you that I want to say hello to some people all the way from New York. What in the world? New York, Miss Lisa Frankowski. Hey, Lisa. I went to, uh, I didn't go to Frankowski. I almost said that. I went to New York for the first time about a year ago, and I had such a good time. We stayed for a week. It was amazing. And so I plan on coming back. Um, I, I just, I'm so excited about having somebody all the way from New York join. Thank you so much. And then I've got Miss Jen Ross from Michigan. Hey, Jen, how you doing? I'm so glad to have you join the crime family. It means so much to me. Your support literally is the difference, and I work hard to give y'all quality content. Thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart for joining. And then I've got two people from Wisconsin. I've got Miss Kristen, I think it's Milius, Milius, Milius. Hey, Kristen, thank you so much, as well as Lori Dunaway. Hi, Lori. So glad to have y'all join in. And certainly not least, but the last one on my list today is all the way from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Mr. Richard Sobers. And I've enjoyed speaking to you, Mr. Richard, a couple of times. We've already messaged back and forth, and it's just been a pleasure to speak with you. And um, I'm not going to share what you said your former job was, but I really appreciate your service, and thank you so much for everything that you did in that in that field. But today's episode is going to be, again, it's going to be another one from Louisiana, but it's a case that's always been uh, intriguing to me. And it's going to be about Vincent Marinello and his wife, Elizabeth. So it's around 2005. And y'all, there's a lot going on in New Orleans. And if you, you know, are not from here, you wouldn't 
you, you wouldn't know about, I guess, the inner workings of the city, but most people flock there from all over the world during Mardi Gras time, which is coming up soon. And locals know that the city isn't to be taken lightly. Crime rates are through the roof in New Orleans and robbery and pickpocketing. Those are all common problems while you're there. And while walking the streets of the quarter, as it's known, is a great pastime during the day, after dark, y'all, things can get a little sketch, all right? But before taking on the nitty-gritty of the city, I want to talk about the good parts, the laissez les bon temps rouler, if you will, right? Letting the good times roll. And I'm going to focus on Canal Street for right now. If you have, if you've never been there, it really is a sight to behold. Even if you, you know, it's just beautiful looking at all the old buildings and the architecture and the smell is not so much because it's kind of stinky, but that charm of days gone by to walk through the streets of New Orleans. It's just something that if you've never done it before, it really is a good time to have. And I'm going to be taking my family. We go to New Orleans every year for Mardi Gras. We say a prayer before we leave. We hope we don't get shot. Hey, matter of fact, like four or five years ago where we went, we were partying. We were having the best time catching all the beads. And then you heard a little pop, pop, and somebody got shot in a porta potty. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, I'm not laughing at someone getting shot, but I'm laughing at the fact that if you're going to shoot me, please don't shoot me while I'm using the restroom. That's probably not the time ideal to do such a thing. I'm busy. Wait till I step out. (laughs) But he, yeah, he surely did. He got popped in a porta potty. All right. Now, at a grand 171 feet wide Canal Street, it's more than just a major downtown thoroughfare. If, you know, looking at it back and forth, if you just watch, you readily see streetcars and taxis and pedestrians, and they're just making their way through the city. And for, 216 years specifically, it has served as an entertainment district. And my family, like I said, we go there all the time to enjoy not only the parades, but the food. Man, the food, y'all. It doesn't get any better. And it's actually king cake season right now. As I record this, I got me some at home waiting. Don't play with me when it comes to a king cake. I'm going to tear it up. This story, though, is going to take place a little bit later in the year than Carnival Time, as we call it. Specifically, we're going to be about August of 2006. And 44-year-old Mary Elizabeth Norman Marinello, affectionately known as Liz to those that loved her, she was, she was living there. But she was born in Mississippi in 1961. And y'all, she was a beautiful woman. She has this brownish auburn hair and light eyes. Her teeth were something you notice in a photo. She had these shiny pearly whites. And I didn't know Liz personally, but I can tell you that just looking at her and learning about her, she was a catch. Okay, this was a, just an all around, this was a good woman. And she worked as a respiratory therapist at a children's hospital, and she was a divorced mother of one daughter. So when she wasn't working, Liz liked to do outdoorsy things. She liked to garden and ride bikes and just really enjoy the great outdoors. And when she was able to, she also liked going to the movies and seeing plays. I'm sure she was able to enjoy a show or two at the famed Sanger Theater, right, nestled right there on Canal Street with its lit-up sign promoting the latest shows, and without question, she loved and lived for her daughter. Now, she would find herself caught up in an eight-month whirlwind romance with a famed sportscaster from the area named Vince Marinello. And he had been married before to his second wife, actually, Andrea Marinello, but they had long been separated. He was single, 
He was charismatic, and everyone at the time knew who Vince was. He has that thick New Orleans accent, right? He had a thin frame, this thick wavy hair, and he had the confidence of a king. So he started his career reporting for the Saints, and he really liked being in front of those cameras. I can't blame him starting with the Saints, right? Who that baby? Y'all all know or should know by now that I am a Taysom Hill fan. And if he ever needs some moral support, I'm there to give it to him. I, I love me some Taysom Hill. And Vince loved him some Saints too. Now, when Vince spoke, people listened, and they knew they would get great coverage of whatever story he was covering from sports to tragedy. Vince was the man on the scene, and he was featured on multiple radio and television channels in New Orleans, and he served as an in-house television host and analyst at the Fairgrounds Racecourse from 1990 until 2005. But Vince did a good job, y'all, and he would eventually climb his way to sports director of NBC affiliate WDSU in 1992. He was a very passionate guy, and it showed. Plainly put, Vince was a liked media personality, and he covered many aspects of the city, which would eventually come to include the complete and utter devastation created by the powerhouse storm Hurricane Katrina. Now, Katrina is a famous storm. I think everyone in the world has heard about Katrina and what it and what it did to the city. And I remember Katrina well. The stories are horrifying of what people went through. And if you don't remember, I'll refresh you real quick. Real quick. Katrina was a devastating Category Five Atlantic hurricane, and it caused one thousand three hundred and ninety-two fatalities. That's insanity. And it caused nearly $145 billion in damages in late August 2005. And it was just under a year prior when Elizabeth and Vince had met when he was emceeing for an event to get some extra cash. This was in February, and it was at the Rockin' Bowl. So that's a bowling alley and a dance hall mix. And it's known for its Zydeco music. If you don't know about Zydeco music, go listen. It's very Louisiana. His magnetic personality and his larger-than-life essence caught the attention of Liz. And he seemed fun, and he seemed a man that was well-known, and he was well-respected. And that was just really attractive to her. Now, you know, sure, there was a bit of an age difference between the two of them. Liz was 41, and Vince was 66. So there was a gap, right? But the intrigue outweighed that age gap. So they began dating almost immediately. They just were had a chemistry that they couldn't deny. And after just eight months of knowing one another, they sealed the deal with a marriage in October of 2005. After all, y'all, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? And they were really devoted to one another. But a little over a year would pass, and as the marriage settled and the hot and heavy, you know, it waned a bit, a few cracks in Vince's persona on camera and in front of others versus what was being experienced at home, they became a little more glaring to Liz. So in front of others, it was all front stage, lights on, smiles, you know, showing with that upbeat personality shining through, and people loved it. But at home... When the attention of everyone else was gone and the lights were off, 
Liz was realizing maybe she missed a few red flags that she probably should have noticed. But again, she was caught up, right? It was a whirlwind romance. See, Vince really, really liked being a celebrity. He loved living the proverbial high life, even if it was more smoke and mirrors. We all know that a nice purse and expensive clothes don't mean shit when it comes to your bank account, don't we? You know, a Gucci purse and no money in your wallet is a friggin' joke. And the truth is, people pretending to be wealthy is like a sickness in our society. Everything and everyone seems to be fake these days, don't they? Like, you can't just be happy being you. Everyone is just dead set on pretending they have more than they do. And impressing others is the drug of choice. Well, Vince was no different. The reality was Vince portrayed himself to be of status and wealthy. But in reality, he was broke and he made very little money. Now, years prior, he had made a decent living on TV, but there had been a change in management and he was now no longer in front of the camera. He was even asked to take a pay cut, but he declined And he moved to radio, but he soon found that the glamour of radio wasn't the same as being on TV in Vincent's eyes. Y'all, if the camera wasn't on him, he didn't feel like he was being celebrated. He also was making less money regardless of the job shift that he made. And I I don't want you to get this twisted or anything. Liz wasn't someone after money or anything like that. But the truth about how much money he made versus what she believed to be the case before marriage was shocking. Liz was basically fronting much of the money and she was funding the marriage at this point. And the stressors of the financial situation and the disagreements the two began having were building. Vince even wrote a, you know, wrote a note to Liz at one point telling her, and he wrote this, this is his own words, you are cold, sarcastic, selfish, unfair, and in general, you've become aggravating. He complained that she didn't compliment him enough. This is a quote. I, on the other hand, always tell you how beautiful you look. Do you really believe I like everything you wear? Do you really think I look at you as being beautiful every time? I think you kind of can pick it up here that things were just not going well to be so early on in a marriage. Then, adding insult to injury, Mother Nature had her own plans when Hurricane Katrina made landfall in New Orleans. This was on August 29th of 2005, and it pounded the city for days. And when it was all said and done, 80% of the city flooded, but there would only be one radio station that remained on air during this time. And lucky for Vince, it was the one he was on. Hot dog, right? He was the one that survived. His show remained on air. And while it had seemed as though his beloved fame was fading, right, in recent times, the spotlight on his voice seemed to be a bit of an ego boost to Vince. And it made him feel as though his career might be getting the boost he had desperately been wanting. Unfortunately for him, though, he too was included in the devastation because when he got home, His own home had been flooded. And so rather than living this pomp and circumstance he loved to portray, 
he found himself living in one of those infamous FEMA trailers that covered much of the landscape of South Louisiana. And look, if you don't know about this, take a minute and go research those FEMA trailers. They are literally infamous. Actually, right here in Livingston, years ago, you would drive down the interstate and you could look to, if you were going, you know, eastbound, if you could look to your left, there used to be a, I don't know if it's still there, I'd have to go look, but there was like a, a graveyard of FEMA trailers. I mean, as far as the eye could see, you'd see all these rundown old FEMA trailers funded by me and you, and they were just left there to junk and rot. So he had one of those FEMA trailers, and it was parked on his property, but certainly did not reflect that lifestyle of the rich and famous by any means. So as the water slowly drained from New Orleans, so did the intimacy of the Marinello marriage. As if lying about his income he supposedly made and the wealth he supposedly had wasn't enough to put a rut in their new marriage, how about your new spouse being incredibly jealous of your only child? That's right. Vince was beginning to resent Liz's daughter for the attention and the love that she received from her mother. That gives me such ick factor. Maybe it's the meanness that I've learned about myself coming out. But it gives me total ick when a man is upset that a woman who grew a child and gave birth to her continues to love their child and give them an abundance of attention. Give me a break, Vince. But he was jealous of it. And the marriage was failing. Liz was emotionally drained from the fighting. The finances, they were an issue. And the disdain that she was, you know, feeling from her new husband towards her child, it was just leaving Liz in a a bad spot. So after many thoughtful discussions with her friends and talking to her mother, Liz decided, you know, I think maybe it would be best if we just part ways and we go about our lives without one another. This isn't working you know, it was a whirlwind, but the wind, the wind done bloweth outeth. <laughs> We're done, right? I, I don't want to do this anymore. And in the summer of 2006, Liz Marinello filed for a divorce from Vince. And it certainly wasn't something that Liz had taken lightly. She was very distraught. However, she made the decision to invest in her own mental health And she also began seeing a therapist to work things out and to have someone basically to listen to what she was feeling. Her therapist's name was Marianne Catalanato, and she was a licensed clinical social worker. And Liz began seeing her for issues, including anxiety and depression, and all of it was related to this these marital problems that she was having. And matter of fact, she had a standing appointment every Thursday from 3 to 3.50 p.m., and she never missed her appointments. At one time, Vince even attended those appointments with her, but that was a thing of the past. They were fighting too much. It was it was a really bad deal, and so she just continued to go on her own and to really you know, work through, through some stuff. Imagine being, you know, in your mid forties and you've now taken on this, this marriage, you know, your second and, and it fails so quickly. I'm sure she was just totally appalled at everything that had happened. And then how could I fall for this? And then to know that the man that you married and you thought you loved was a total, you know, sham really. I can see why you might want to go talk to somebody, maybe rethink some yourself almost like what, what kind of decision making have I been doing? Um, but again, I think that's pretty important about Liz's 
um, personality is that she did want to be, you know, her best and to give her best and that she sought help to make sure that, you know, she wasn't kind of falling, falling off the wagon here. So while I certainly was not privy to any of their sessions, obviously, I can imagine that she felt completely duped and that she was mortified, right? That she had fallen for Vince, who seemed to be a pompous, broke, jealous jerk at this point. And not to mention the fact that Liz was smart. How could she misread him so badly and get herself into this marriage? She was too old to be dealing with such lies and this juvenile behavior of this man, nearly 20 years her senior. But she was married to the man for now. Liz was strong and she would be able to bounce back from this, but she needed help in understanding and really mitigating her feelings about the devastation that had been brought to her to her life. So it was August 31st, 2006, and Liz had attended her appointment with Ms. Catalanado. And the meeting took place at Metairie Towers, which is located along Metairie Road. And that's a main high-end residential and commercial thoroughfare. And that neighborhood contains places like banks and restaurants and shops. But it's also a good location because it's a quick connection to Interstate 10, which is, you know, the interstate to take you anywhere. And that meeting went well, although Liz had found out more about Vincent that made her beyond angry and very hurt. In fact, she shared with her therapist the fact that she found out Vince was still paying his ex-wife's expenses. Hey, y'all. KJ here. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious and ready-to-eat meals. They are fresh, never-frozen, dietitian-approved, and ready in just two minutes. I bring them to school with me, and they're perfect so I don't go grabbing junk out of the vending machines. There's no prep and no mess. Just heat, eat, and toss. With their sign-and-save program, Factor is less expensive than takeout. The best part for me is that they're flexible for my schedule. I can get as much or as little as I need by choosing my meals every week. The options are endless with 35 different meals to choose from every week and with 60 add-on options, my mind and body stay fueled throughout the day. And let's face it, that's great for this busy mom and podcaster. Plus, I can pause and reschedule my deliveries at any time. Want to see what it's all about? Head to factormeals.com speak50 and use code speak50 to get 50% off. That's code speak50 at factormeals.com speak50 to get 50% off. Like, what? You're still paying for your ex-wife? Not to mention, he wasn't making much money. He married Liz and then took her funds to pay his ex-wife's bills? Bro, OMG. Not today, Satan. Do you hear me? I would lose my mind. Are you kidding me? I would be mad too. What kind of relationship do you have with your ex to be paying her bills while married to a new woman who is basically funding your dog and pony show. Can you imagine? Mm, 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 mm. Then adding insult to that injury, Liz was completely flabbergasted to discover that although Vince and his ex had been separated since 1980, They weren't technically divorced. Not until three days after he married Liz. He was still married to the woman, still paying her bills, and married Liz. 
Basically, Liz realized she was dating and had technically married a married man. And that deceit was unbearable and just sickening. What else are you lying about? I mean, that's where my brain would be. You don't like my kid. You hurriedly married me. You spend it all, you know, you're spending all my money. You're still married. What? OMG. But Liz wasn't a pushover. And she stood on business, as the kids would say these days. And that's right. She told Vince she wanted a divorce and not yesterday. Like now. I want a divorce now. And she made sure he knew, look, if you're going to give me a hard time about this after you've already just taken me for a ride anyway, she said, look, I'm going to go public with the reality that you're a bigamist. If you're going to give me a hard time, then I'll just let everybody know what kind of man you really are. This is ridiculous. And they hadn't been married long. And in reality, Liz was actually just hoping to have the marriage annulled and just have her hands washed of it. See, she had already hired an attorney. Her name was Gwen Hanhart. And Gwen had filed a divorce petition on Liz's behalf in July of 2006. Vince had already left that marital home that they once shared. That was around August 1st. And almost immediately on August 2nd, that same attorney, Gwen, had prepared an, amend, uh, an amended petition asking that the marriage be annulled due to the bigamy issue at the time that, mar- uh, that Liz married him. So they had grounds to stand on. He couldn't have technically married her. He was already a married man. She didn't sign up for this, and she wanted no part of these lies. But she wasn't having an easy time getting through to Vince because he seemed to suffer from a bad case of narcissism. I get really irritated these days. I know this isn't about me, but I I get irritated these days. I don't know about you, but everything seems to be a disorder, right? Like as if a doctor could fix it. I guess he would fall then into the category of narcissistic personality disorder. But I mean, where I come from, he would just be called an entitled asshole, okay? But potato, potato, whatever. We'll give him a medical diagnosis. But basically, this type of person is someone who has an unreasonably high sense of their own importance, and they literally seek others' attention with no other reason but to have those people admire them. It's not about the other people. It's about them. He wanted other people to admire him just because he was the great Vince. The tricky side of this is that narcissists mask extreme confidence, but in reality, they're really not sure of their self-worth and they're easily upset by the slightest criticism. And y'all, I am no man-hater by any means. I'm not. I'm just going to say that Vince suffered from a chronic case of that extreme fragile masculinity that you hear about. I mean, his ego was made of eggshells. He was bothered by, but not the consequences of his own actions and the lies in the marriage, but bothered by the idea that he was so ingrained in society and people thought so much of him that this information, if it was leaked, would derail his so-called career comeback that he was so desperately trying to get. It was basically a shit show and Liz was over it, all right? And she wasn't going to fight about it. She was over it. 
So she completed her session alone with her uh, Dr. Catalanato, uh, and she said her goodbyes to her therapist. She gathered her things, and she headed to her car. So it was roughly 3.58 p.m., and her day was coming to an end. She may have needed to, you know, run to the grocery store or make a few phone calls or something along those lines, but she was in a decent place at the moment. And although she and Vincent were estranged at this point, she still had a good head on her shoulders, and she she knew she was going to get through this. So she exited the building, and she quietly walked to her car, which was parked towards the middle of the parking lot, and she was likely looking for her keys in her white purse as she approached her vehicle. And just before she opened the car door, a man approached her. Now, whether he spoke to her or not is unclear, but as she looked up at him, and before her brain could even process what she was seeing, the man raised a thirty-eight special and shot her twice, directly in the face. She didn't even have time to raise her arms to defend herself. The shots were fired rapidly, bow, bow, right? One after the other. And her lifeless body collapsed directly to the ground where she laid sprawled on her back as the warm blood slowly pooled around her shattered head. And the bullets entered her head and would seal her fate because she didn't stand a chance. As quickly as that man had approached Liz, he was gone, but not without being seen by witnesses. A 911 call was made by a clearly distressed female witness. Police were quick to arrive at the scene, and the witnesses stuck around telling them of the shooter's grand escape. They described the shooter as a scruffy old guy with wild hair, and they mentioned he had a beard and a mustache, and he had like beady eyes. So they had a pretty decent description of what this guy looked like. One witness, her name was Pat- Patricia Whitey, she explained that she exited the building at approximately the same time as Liz and that the man, which she described as having a fake-looking beard, she didn't think it even looked real, wearing jeans, a hat, and a long-sleeved flannel shirt, he made her very nervous when she saw him in the parking lot because he just struck her as out of place and he looked odd and just his being made her nervous. And then another man, his name was Stanton Bundy, his office overlooked the parking lot and he said immediately after he heard those two shots, he saw a scruffy old guy riding a bicycle through a row of cars in the parking lot. And then another resident said that he saw the same guy who caught his attention because he seemed really overdressed considering how hot the day was in a flannel shirt and he was pedaling furiously to leave the parking lot no more than 30 seconds after he heard the shots. So this fella, was his description was pretty clear. All people said they saw the same guy. And the truth seemed to be that someone waited for Liz to exit the building walked up and shot her, then simply jumped on a bicycle and rode away. And by the time responders had arrived, that assailant was long gone. So back at the hospital, amazingly, 
Liz was still alive. She was alive, y'all, with two bullets to the face. And when she reached the hospital, her family, I'm sure, was immensely scared. But her family did have some hope to cling to. So based on a publication that I read from the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, um, they were writing some articles I found specifically giving attention to patients with gunshot wound head trauma. So this is likely what Liz endured. Whenever they roll them into the hospital, right, the patients are aggressively resuscitated upon initial arrival at the hospital. And if blood pressure and oxygenation can be maintained in that victim, an urgent CT scan of the head would have been obtained. Now, once they do that, they, the doctors are then going to determine the level of consciousness, and they do this on what's called a Glasgow Coma Scale, and that scale is from 1 to 15. And any patient that has a score of less than a 7 or 8 is considered to be in a coma. Because basically, they're trying to say, what is the degree of brainstem uh, neurological function that this person has? Now, I want to tell you something about this. I don't know what her family went through when they were getting this information and how horrible it, you know, they felt. But I can tell you I have an own personal experience I'm going to shortly share with you. And it has to do with my own husband, who suffered a traumatic brain injury years ago. And this was something that his mama well documented as it was happening. And, you know, I don't have access to Liz's medical records for obviously obvious reasons, but I wanted to share my husband's Glasgow coma score so you can hear exactly what my family was told when we were facing the exact same situation. It was not a gunshot wound. I will tell you that it was from a motorcycle accident, but he too, you know, suffered severe brain trauma. And this is what the doctors said to us. I'm going to read this from a book that his mom made for him. And, you know, it's got some personal stuff in there. But, hey, you're a listener, right? You deserve to hear it. I'm looking at the book, and it's got kind of the story of what happened to my husband and how that he was going to have to go into surgery, and he was basically in, you know, the fight for his life. His leg was partially amputated, which is why he had to have a major surgery, but his head, his brain was swelling, and so it was causing severe problems. And on this Glasgow Coma score, they look at your eyes open, your best verbal response, and your best, you know, motor response. Remember, if you score really low, that means it's bad news. Well, my husband's eyes did not open spontaneously. They did not open to speech. They would open only if he was... Uh, put in further pain. His eyes would open. The best verbal response we got, you could have a high score of being oriented, then there was confused, then there was inappropriate words. My husband scored a two with incomprehensible sounds. So he couldn't even put words together. It was just noise, basically, that he was making. And then his best motor response, he did not obey commands. He could not point out any pain. He scored with a withdrawal to pain only. So, you know, he was not doing well. And then the doctor even, um, there's a note on here that says that it was not looking good. And the doctor said that he had a 70% chance of dying. And that's basically what our family was left with to cling to in the waiting room. 70% chance of not surviving is um, gut-wrenching, to say the least. 
And just to add insult to that injury, just a personal story, my husband's brother had already been killed in a boating accident. So his poor mama went through a lot, you know. So I don't know exactly what Liz's scores were, but I can tell you that no matter how much you love someone, you can never love them back to life, unfortunately. All you can do is pray. And lucky for me, the prayers were heard and answered, and my husband did survive. Not only did he survive, he went past any milestone they expected him to ever make. He was supposed to be in a nursing home, getting round-the-clock care, nearly vegetative, and he's not. You know, he's my husband, and, and he's a great daddy. Liz was facing one, not to mention two bullets to the face, which is obviously going to be devastating as it passes through that vital brain tissue and it injured important vascular structures inside of her head. And it's common that immediately after being shot, a rapidly expanding blood clot in the brain will critically compress the brain tissue, which is what results in that immediate death, like at the scene. But if you survive that initial penetrating blast, the issue then becomes the increasing pressure inside of the skull. So as Liz lay severely wounded and clinging to life at the Charity Hospital Trauma Center in Elmwood, Dennis Thornton, who was the commander of the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office Homicide Division at the time, he had been assigned scene investigator, and he had spoken to many people at the scene, including Liz's therapist, who said her husband was aware of the standing appointments because he had attended the sessions before with her, as I had already mentioned to you. So police tried to contact Vince to say, oh my God, your wife's been shot. Um, You know, we've taken her here. You might want to get up there. You know, they tried to get in touch with him, but he just wasn't answering the phone. He wasn't at home, AKA the FEMA trailer. Uh, He wasn't anywhere. And it wouldn't be until 1030 that night that a colleague who worked with him named Bob Mitchell would get a hold of Vince and share the horrible news. And so Vince shrieked through the phone, is she alive or dead? But for the moment, he got good news. For the moment, Liz was still alive. Unfortunately for Liz, though, her family and her loved one's prayers would sadly not be enough to save her from the horrific attack she sustained that day. And Liz would succumb to her injuries shortly thereafter around 2 a.m. This was now a murder. It's well known that when you're, you know, starting to investigate a murder, you're going to go from the inside, you know, people who are closest to the victim, and you're going to work your way out when you're trying to look for suspects. And going through a bad divorce made Vince the prime suspect. So when police finally spoke to him themselves, they wondered why he was nowhere to be found during their original attempts to contact him, but he actually had a valid reason, despite what you may be thinking. Vince had been driving to Mississippi at the time of that shooting uh, uh, because he had been invited to watch a Saints football game at the home of an ex-girlfriend. And this did check out, all right? And you can't be at two places at one time. So this was looking to be another incredibly sad and senseless killing, you know, due to a robbery gone wrong, which wasn't too far-fetched considering the ridiculously high crime rates of New Orleans. Lucky for police, though, the investigation would start off strong in that there was a security camera facing the Metairie Towers, 
and the footage therein was pretty telling. It, it clearly revealed a person standing in and then moving about the parking lot right before the murder. A school teacher also came forward. Shout out to the school teachers. Never underestimate if we're paying attention or not. But a school teacher came forward. Her name was Lauren White, Miss White. And, you know, I know you're like, what would a teacher know about a murder? Well, really, she just held actually a small piece of a large puzzle that was going to be put together. See, she was a teacher at a grammar school, and she had taken note on the three afternoons that led up to the murder. She was outside with students, and she kept noticing a man who appeared to be a vagrant riding a bicycle towards Metairie Towers. Now, that was the three days before the murder. And what really made her notice him was, number one, she had to protect her students, right? And the possibility of this vagrant near the school was alarming to her because she said he looked really focused and he had really scary eyes. Those are her words, very focused with scary eyes. And and number two, Miss White stated that he wore the same type of clothing each of the days that she saw him, and that in and of itself concerned her. It was just odd, right? He had the exact same clothes on every time, and those clothes m- sounded much like what the woman said at, at Metairie Towers that the bad guy was wearing that shot her. And she also mentioned that she saw him travel in the direction of Metairie Towers on the day of the murder. But this time, the day of the murder, she didn't see him return. So were those three days leading up to this possibly a run-through or practice for the murder to come? That teacher felt like this guy was involved somehow or at least matched the description that the other people had given. Within days of Liz's murder, the police would be confident that this was not a botched robbery. Matter of fact, Jefferson Parish Sheriff Harry Lee literally called this a hit job to the media. This is totally off, off topic, but I wanted to tell you all this because I was researching this. And did you know that Sheriff Harry Lee's sister was the first Asian Playboy model centerfold? Now you know. But back to the story at hand. This was a hit job. And they were going to investigate it as such. It wasn't random. This was a planned attack. Now, I'm going to have to break this into two parts because you won't want to miss all of the little details and a little curveball I'm going to throw your way at the end of next episode. Look, when it's all said and done, good things take time. And I don't want to rush and give you less than you deserve because, honey, dust settles, but I don't. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 